Welcome back to another episode of The Dented Can. I am your host, Dave, and I'm feeling a little grungy today. Uh, Over the weekend, I saw an article online from Rolling Stone that Soundgarden and the Chris Cornell estate came to a an out-of-court agreement settlement, which is wonderful news because now we finally get to enjoy the last recordings with Chris uh, before his his suicide. Um, I mean, I grew up grew up with this music, so it's you know I was what fourteen years old. When Nirvana's Nevermind came out, it was what, 91. Um, So feeling grungy, I just kind of stayed reading different articles. I just finished one up uh, on Far Out Magazine out of the UK uh, on their website. Uh, This is why Neil Young is called the Godfather of Grunge by Jay Taysom. Uh, It's pretty, I mean, it's short, but it's got some some good uh, supporting facts of, or points, rather, of why one would dub him the godfather of grunge. Uh, in fact, local radio personality Mike Lapatino on PLR uh, calls him that quite regularly. So, um, but, but an article uh, in specific that I wanted to go over and kind of add my commentary as we go, is an article from a website called ultimateclassicrock.com. Grunge pre-Nirvana, 20 things that set the stage for Nevermind. Um, so, and it's just kind of set up in these little blocks these different little things, so I'll read it, comment, and and go from there. So we'll take a quick break, grab a beer, a bourbon, a Pepsi, tea, coffee, and a Twinkie, <laughs> and uh, we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. So let's get grungy. Um, So we're going over this article. Grunge pre-Nirvana, 20 things that set the stage for Nevermind. Uh, So it introduces, um, does something like this. When Nirvana released their breakthrough album Nevermind on September 24th, 1991, it set in motion a massive shift in music and culture as the world embraced the grunge revolution. Still, 
there were many vital elements that preceded the landmark LP. The 1987 stock market crash followed by the Gulf War rendered a generation of young adults questioning what kind of future they were stepping into. Disillusioned with what was in the mainstream at the time, artists searched for new ways to express their inner turmoil. In Seattle, a perfect storm of attitude, adrenaline, and experimentation was fostering a new sound. So, I've, I kind of remember the, the, the stock market crash. My dad, you know, like any good business guy, uh, you know, he had some investments. Um, didn't really affect us that bad. Um, of course, I was 14 and doing my own thing. So, um, in the Gulf War, I remember that. Uh, I was in Valley Forge Military Academy at the time. Uh, I started that whole chapter of my life with a broken and broken growth plate <laughs> from falling out Mike Lane's window trying to sneak a cigarette at like, you know, what our little sleepover as we had liberated some alcohol. It was an Easter weekend too. Shipping off to military school to, <laughs> that weekend. Oh, man. So, um... But yeah, that's that's like, you know, you get your your music from the older kids, and you know, like I learned about uh, the Grateful Dead and Zeppelin and stuff from my dad's best friend and his daughters. They were, you know, several years older than me. There's three of them, so they ranged, and that's how I learned about them. So. Going to military school, we started hearing about these bands. Um, so it goes on to say, You always had the dream of being a rock guy, but it didn't seem real because you were not living in a town where that's where you see people that happening to. Wow. Anyways. Um... And this was said by Allison Chains drummer Sean Kinney uh, decades later when he was on uh, CBS News. Uh, goes on, with so much talent bubbling up in one place, it was inevitable that Seattle would eventually spawn Rock's new big act. Never mind, and its hit single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, would burst the dam wide open leading to a tidal wave of grunge across the world. Ah, uh, pretty, pretty accurate, I think. Uh, thinking back, you know, that's that song, you heard that song everywhere. And started hearing about, you know, that's when I started hearing about Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Mud Honey and and in those bands, Alice in Chains. Um, 
When Nevermind comes out, explained Mark Yarn, author of Everybody Loves Our Town, an oral history of grunge, it's sort of a dividing line between the old era and the new. Still, the elements of grunge didn't form overnight. Many things had to fall into place for Nevermind to become a generation-defining release. We take a look at the bands, companies, places, and trends that paved the way for Nevermind. So here, that's the, the intro. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, and here we go. So we're going to start this list. Uh, first on the list is the Melvins. Uh, formed in 1983 in Mon Monsanto, no, Montesano, Washington. Ooh, man, I butchered that, huh? Uh, the Melvins are often credited as grunge's forefathers. Not to be confused with grunge's godfather, Mr. Neil Young. <laughs> uh, with Buzz Osborne on vocals and guitar, Matt Lunkin on bass, and Dale Corver on drums, the trio took classic rock influences such as Kiss, Black Sabbath, and Cheap Trick and blended them with a hardcore punk. The result was something new altogether, and through their sound would evolve. This early sludgy style would eventually launch some of the first grunge songs. Melvin's sound would permeate throughout the Seattle music scene, influencing a wide range of artists, many of them whom will appear on this list. Uh, again, I didn't get into the Melvins until after Nevermind came out. Uh, great band. Uh, next on the list is Green River. Uh, even though they were together for only a short four-year span from 1984 to 88, Green River left an incredible mark as one of grunge's most important acts. The band was originally made up of singer Mark Arm, guitarist Steve Turner and Stone Gossard, bassist Jeff Ament, and Alex Vincent on drums. Those names are likely familiar to rock fans as Gossard and Ament later moved on to co-found Pearl Jam while Turner and Arm teamed up in Mudhoney. Though Green River's popularity didn't stretch far beyond their Seattle base, the group is credited with putting out the first grunge release, the 1985 EP Come On Down. I remember the first time I heard Green River. Um, it, it just it blew my mind. Uh, the the just the sounds and the vocals and how everything was 
was orchestrated and put together was just just stuff I had never ever heard of. Now, I mean, I was just a punk kid, you know, hanging out in Bridgeport. So, I mean, like, at that time, I didn't realize exactly how amazing the, the, the music and talent was even around here. So, um, I mean, that I was used to, you know, the radio fluff. And hearing Green River just, it blew my mind. I loved it. Um, moving on, CZ Records. It's not the label most associated with the grunge movement. See that one a little bit further down. But CZ Records play an important part in bringing the genre to a bigger audience. Founded in 1985, CZ's initial release was a compilation album titled Deep Six. The 14-song LP featured original recordings by six up-and-coming Seattle acts. The Melvins, Green River, Soundgarden, Skinyard, Malfunction, and The U-Men. All of these artists would play important roles in the grunge explosion, but it was C and Z that gave them the initial exposure. Um, never, never had never heard of CZ Records uh, until I saw this article. Um, I mean, I didn't make it a, a habit of exploring the the jackets on CDs. <laughs> Remember those? Uh, and cassettes till much later in life when my appreciation for music uh, grew much deeper and uh, I began to form more intimate relations. So to me, the, the, the major label for grunge, of course we know is uh, Sub Pop. Um, which, as I kind of hinted, is on the list. Uh, moving on down the list, Soundgarden. Probably one of my favorite, favorite bands of all time, next to Pearl Jam and The Grateful Dead. Um, the first of what would later be called Grunge's Big Four Soundgarden formed in 1984, initially a trio with Chris Cornell on vocals and drums, Kim Thale on guitar, and Hiro Yadamoto on bass. The group dabbled in some of the genre's heaviest waters, adding a decidedly metal influence to the grunge sound. By 1986, Soundgarden were a quartet with Matt Cameron Coming in on coming on board as drummer, that moved that move freed up Cornell to focus on vocal duties. Blessed with a wide range and dynamic pipes that could be powerful and vulnerable all at once, Cornell quickly earned the reputation as one of the genre's greatest frontmen. After releasing the early EP "Screaming Life" in 1987. 
and a FOP in 1988, Soundgarden unveiled their debut full-length album, Ultra Mega OK, in October of 1988. Though the LP wasn't a mainstream success, it garnered enough attention to earn the band a Grammy nomination for Best Metal Performance. They lost to Metallica. After touring in support of Ultra Mega OK, Soundgarden signed with A&M Records, becoming the first grunge group to join a major label. I have looked for those EPs to no avail. I haven't in a while. I always thought that um, Ultra Mega OK was their first release ever, you know, at all. Um, So if anybody knows where I can find it, like the the physical, I I found it online, but I want to own a a copy, a CD copy, or uh, a cassette tape, vinyl maybe, something cool. <laughs> Anyways, uh, moving right along, probably one of the best band names. Ever. Mud Honey. One of the two bands to emerge from the ashes of Green River, Mud Honey formed in 1988. Joining Steve Turner and Mark Arm were Matt Lunkin, founding bassist of the Melvins, and drummer Dan Peters. Later that year, Mud Honey released their first EP, Super Fuzz Big Muff. Soon after that, Their lead single, Touch Me, I'm Sick, became a hit on college radio, helping spread the grunge sound beyond Seattle to a national fan base. Both Superfuzz Big Muff and the band's 1989 self-titled LP were highly influential on like-minded artists, with Kurt Kurt Cobain among the band's most passionate fans. Peters later played on the Nirvana single, Silver. Though Mudhoney never exploded like some of the, their grunge brethren, they've enjoyed a consistent career for more than 30 years. The group also popped up in the 1996 Chris Farley comedy, Black Sheep, and even was the subject of a 2012 documentary, I'm Now. The story of Mud Honey. Uh, that was a great movie. <laughs> um, Sub Pop. Founded in 1986 and based in Seattle, Sub Pop quickly became the destination label for all emerging grunge artists. Simply put, what Motown did for R&B in Detroit in the 60s, Sub Pop years later for the grunge music emerging from Seattle. The company's first release, a compilation album called Sub Pop 100, featured such notable future stars as Sonic Youth, Skinny Puppy, and Steve Albini, who go on to produce Nirvana's In Utero. In 1988, Sub Pop would release Love Buzz, Nirvana's first single, A year later, they put out Bleach, 
the band's debut album. Soundgarden, Green River, Mud Honey, The Smashing Pumpkins, You Men, Screaming Trees, and Hole are just some of the other notable acts released that released material with Sub Pop during the late 80s and early 90s. The, the Screaming Trees, that floored me. I thought they were post-Nevermind. I thought they were one of the, the bands that came out after them. Uh, so, see? Always learning. Always learning. It's always something new. Alice in Chains. Uh, you know, just another one of those tragedies. Just like uh, losing Chris Cornell to uh, suicide. Um, Lane Staley. I relate. I relate very well to... We shared some of the same demons. <laughs> so let's... Uh, getting back to it. Let's see what they have to say about Alice and Jane's. Sometimes overlooked among the... Mount Rushmore of Grunge Acts, Alice in Chains added a distinct twist to the genre's sound. The band's members had bounced around several other Seattle area acts before eventually coming together in 1987. Much of Alice in Chains' sound was attributed to singer Lane Staley and guitarist Jerry Cantrell, who shared vocal duties, harmonizing in dreary yet singular tones. The band's 1988 demo, The Treehouse Tapes, would eventually find its way to music managers Kelly Curtis and Susan Silver, who also represented Soundgarden at the time. They quickly signed Alice in Chains and soon arranged a record deal with Columbia. The band's debut LP, 1990's Facelift, would sell more than 2 million copies and spawn the radio hit Man in the Box. The album marked the first true mainstream breakthrough for a grunge release, though many would follow. I remember, wow, what was I doing? I was hanging out at Sonny Pizzuto's house in Southport, smoking cigarettes. Smoked myself, so many cigarettes, I smoked myself sick. And we just kept listening to that album, Facelift, over. Just whoop, flip it. Whoop, flip it, whoop, flip it. We, it was a cassette, you know, the things with the tape in it. You had to, anyways. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, moving on. Oh, getting back. Screaming Trees. This is where last, when I first found this article, it's just, I was just like, what? Uh, in the small town of Ellensburg, Washington, roughly two hours drive from east from Seattle, the band Screaming Trees formed in 1985. So, like, wow, I was eight, nine, math, never mind. <laughs> Mixing elements of punk, psychedelic, garage, and classic rock, the group spent the first few years honing its musical direction, 
Their debut album, Clairvoyance, was released in 1986. Though it received little attention outside of the Pacific Northwest, the LP earned Screaming Trees a deal with SST Records, an indie label out of Long Beach, California, founded by Black Flag guitarist Greg Ginn. 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 Never knew. I can never figure that his name out. Uh, Screaming Trees soon developed a following among grunge and indie rock fans alike, touring with everyone from the Meat Puppets to Sonic Youth to Alice in Chains. In 1990, the band signed with Epic Records and released the Chris Cornell-produced album Uncle Anastasia. The single Bed of Roses would become the band's first hit in 1991. A year later, Nearly Lost You from the LP Sweet Oblivion would lift Screaming Trees to further mainstream heights. By that point, the band had been swept up in the nation's grunge hysteria powered by Nevermind. Still, Screaming Trees began blazing that trail well before Nirvana became a household name. That's what sealed it for me. I was like, what? Never, never would have... Um, the Rocket. <laughs> alternative media, before the term alternative media had really been coined, Seattle newspaper The Rocket began circulation in 1979. The publication focused solely on the local music scene, giving a spotlight to acts that otherwise would have gone largely unnoticed by the average music fan. Occasionally, it would cover headlining artists on national tours, but those instances were usually just opportunities to trash what was deemed popular by the mainstream. The Rocket was openly opinionated, profoundly independent, and unapologetically cool. Sounds like a podcast I know. <laughs> Oh, no, I try to keep my opinions to myself. <laughs> Get me in trouble. Uh, where was I? Uh, an important voice among the underground music crowd, the newspaper championed many grunge acts well before audiences had taken notice. Soundgarden, Nirvana, Alice in Chains all graced the rocket long before the world knew who they were. But like grunge itself, the newspaper would crumble under its own commercialization. The Rocket was sold in 1995, changed hands again at the dawn of the millennium before publishing its final issue in 2000. Uh, KCMU Based at the University of Washington, the largely volunteer-run radio station KCMU found itself as the important early outlet for grunge music. For several years, KCMU was ground central for the Seattle music scene, noted Charles R. Cross, one-time editor of The Rocket. It was the only area radio station that regularly supported local bands. Indeed, KCM, KCMU 
ingrained itself in the Seattle music scene, giving many of the movement's biggest acts their first airplay. Still, the connection went even deeper than that as members of Soundgarden, Green River, and Mudhoney were among the many musicians who served as volunteer DJs at KCMU. Sub Pop founder Bruce Pavitt announced the Sub Pop 100 on the station's airways. Faith Henschel, who was once the KCMU music director, put together a completion tape of grunge artists titled Bands That Will Make You Money and sent it to every record label rep she could find, in many cases helping undiscovered artists get their foot in the door. In 1988, KCMU played Floyd the Barber by a new band from Aberdeen called Nirvana, giving the group its first radio airplay. Frontman Kurt Cobain would hand-deliver the band's debut single, Love Buzz, to the station later that year. He returned in 1991 with Nirvana's second LP, Never mind. No, never mind. The the album. I want you to keep listening. <laughs> okay, I've had too much coffee. Leave me alone. Um, the Crocodile Cafe. Why? I want to go there. The Crocodile Cafe opened its doors on April 30th of 1991 and almost immediately became one of the go-to music venues in the grunge revolution. All of the scene's biggest artists played the 500-person club, including Pearl Jam, Mad Season, and Tad. Nirvana famously opened for Mudhoney in 1992 under the pseudonym Pen Cap Chu. The venue's original owner, Stephanie Dorgan would marry R.E.M. guitarist Peter Buck, who regularly performed at the club. Crocodile Cafe would close in 2007, around the same time Dorgan and Buck divorced, but reopened in 2009 as The Crocodile. The new ownership included Alice in Chains drummer Sean Kinney, Susan Silver, manager of Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, and Portugal. The man, guitarist Eric Hawk, their involvement reflecting just how important the venue was to musicians in the Pacific Northwest. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Crocodile announced it would be moving, recloading relocating to a new location roughly half a mile from its original address. I don't know why they had to put that in there. <laughs> I don't. I just... What, what COVID has to... Uh, mm. See, there goes my... See, my, my opinions are starting to boil over. So... There is quite a, f a few more of these. Um, Mother Love Bone. 
Jeff Almanet and Stone Gosser's next project after Green River was Mother Love Bone. Guitarist Bruce Fairweather, who'd also been a Green River member, joined the new group, along with drummer Greg Gilmore and singer Andrew Wood, who was also in Malfunction. It was Wood who really helped set the group apart. His lively onstage persona, eclectic fashion, sense, and colorful lyrics earning the band attention. Mother Love Bone put out their debut EP, Shine, in 1989 and received substantial buzz behind the release. They'd soon return to the studio to record their album, debut album, Apple. But on March 19, 1990, days before the LP's release, Wood overdosed on heroin and died. Mother Love Bone disbanded with its members soon moving on to other projects. Yeah, and then ironically enough, next on the list, heroin. The 60s had LSD, the 80s had cocaine, but the 90s heroin was the drug of choice. Yeah, there's the demon. Especially with those surrounding the grunge movement. Some of the biggest names in the genre infamously fought their addiction to the drug, including Kurt Cobain, Lane Staley, Andrew Wood, Courtney Love, and Jonathan Melvone from the Smashing Pumpkins. Of the aforementioned names, only Love has survived. As grunge surged in the 1990s, headlines across the nation focused on the growing number of heroin users in Seattle. The New York Times claimed the city's three main drugs were espresso, beer, and heroin. <laughs> A mid-90s Rolling Stone article described the Emerald City as junkie town, heroin chic. A look characterized by pale skin, dark circles under the eyes, and gaunt features became a popular fashion trend at the time, thanks largely to the grunge influence. Still, some argued that Seattle's heroin problem was just similar to any major city at the time as heroin numbers across America saw a staggering increase. And then, of course, this leads us to Temple of the Dog, and I think we're gonna we're gonna pause here till next week, and uh, we will finish this list because uh, there's still so much fascinating information um, and little quips and stories of my life to go along with it, um, and we can do that. So we will be right back. So there's, uh, I guess, episode one, part one of my grunge phase here. Um, we're not ignoring the, the garden, the gardening experiment. Uh, 
the plants are doing great. Uh, at least in my opinion. Because <laughs> uh, this is my first time actually gardening seriously. Um, this weekend I hope to get the the raised bed built and have everything just set and ready to go for when my garden sensei and great friend Cat Santos uh, gives me the okay to plant in the ground. <laughs> um, no, seriously, she's been a, a wealth of of information. Uh, and, and I'm really, I'm learning a lot. And, you know, uh, I, I see why people either love it or hate it. Uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, and, it, you know, relating back to, you know, the farming conversations, it makes me just that much more grateful for that convenience of being able to just go to the store and buy my beets and my kale and, and you know, my raspberries and blueberries and, you know, zucchini, whatever, you know, like it, it, it takes a lot of work. With that said, I'm also super excited to see what my rewards are going to be. Um, you know, even if I get a couple tomatoes and a couple cucumbers and a couple zucchinis and, you know, a handful of jalapeno peppers and whatever, you know, it's still, you know, a reward. And now it's a goal to say, hey, what did I learn and what can I do to make it better next season so uh the i will post pictures uh of of the garden when that's finished uh, i'll probably do some more of the plants see how those are going uh other than that we're ramping up for uh more continued and scheduled production of our hot sauce Harborview Heat, 100% um, all natural. There is no preservatives, no additives, just jalapenos, onions, garlic, cilantro, lime juice, my secret proprietary blend of herbs and spices. <laughs> uh, and, and a lot of pride and a lot of care. Um, you know, jalapenos are really, really good for you. So, you know, why not get something super healthy for you that's super fresh? And, you know, also $2 uh, goes to Callie's Hope. So, you know, I think it's a win-win. So we're getting ready with that. 
uh, talking to a couple friends of mine uh, that are gearing up for some really cool rock and roll. So we'll be hearing from them coming up. Uh, both have exciting uh, things in the works. And uh, they're actually also two people that I've known uh, most of my life. So it's just super cool to be able to have them come on. So there's uh, that's what we're up to. Um, you know, as always, um, share your info. Uh, you know, like your, your, your band schedules, things that you're into, <laughs> um, on the Facebook group page, interact with each other, check out the, uh, Instagram page for, uh, photographic updates, I guess, <laughs> show support and, um, you know we're still we're still on track with uh, Callie's Hope. Um, if you see the link, uh, if you can donate, please do. If you can't, that's great. Don't worry about it. Share it. You know that in itself is is a great help. If you can just share the link, get it out there. So. Uh, hey, you know, thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, supporting the Denny Can. Um, try to give you a better show. And I'm really grateful for everybody that does uh, come in and listen. Um, so with that, I love you all. And if you dented the can, the beer was good. <laughs>